I would ask anybody who has a criticism of anything we're saying, how are we doing now? Are we are we pulling right. it off? Yeah. Are we an enlightened culture that understands the, the philosophical difficulties of democracy, liberty, equality, jurisprudence? Those such things are, uh, in my mind, uh, <laughs> we have a lot more we have a lot more work to do. It's just putting the child first and their path first and recognizing the recognizing the primacy of that and that it's a priority and it's much more important than whatever educational program has been laid down by <laughs> state lawmakers, committees of experts. It's just, to me, it's just a no-brainer. Welcome to The Unexamined Education. My name is Jonathan Ali. And as always, I'm joined by my friend, Sean Dalrymple. In our conversations, we draw upon our experience as educators to gain insight into the essence of teaching and learning. We hope that our discussions inspire and benefit you, whether you are a teacher, administrator, student, parent, or anyone else that understands the importance of education in the life of the human being. Good morning, Sean. Good morning, John. In the last episode, we talked about the importance of the authentic engagement of the individual in learning and we emphasized from our own experiences how we found that this is the most important factor in learning and in education. Right. And it's important at this point, in order to balance our discussion and keep it balanced, that we talk about the fact that I know in my case and in your case in the discussions that we've had, we tend to lean very heavily towards what I would call the liberation of the individual when it comes to education. And we de-emphasize and to a certain extent ignore the idea that the group has legitimate concerns and expectations that should be brought to bear upon the educational process that should be shaping that process. Would you agree with that, Sean? <laughs> yeah, I agree that the group has an interest. In no, no, education. that we ha- that we ignore that typically. Oh, oh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I agree. Why we do we ignore do that? that. We ignore that. We ignore it because it's such a beating to go through it. <laughs> what do you <laughs> mean? I mean, it's it's gotten so uh, tilted towards the, the group's needs that it almost feels like ridiculous to acknowledge them because they've become tyrannical. Yes. I was actually, I was thinking of using the same phrase, the tyranny of the group in this context. Yeah. And it's hard when you have a tyrant dominating and in a lot of ways violating the rights of others. It's hard to recognize any true claims that that tyrant might have. Right. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> because we're talking about this from a very fundamental point of view about what education should be. And while we are in a, we engage in the process of tearing things down and criticizing a lot of aspects of the current structure, at the same time, if we're going to propose what education should be, then we can't ignore the fact that the concerns and expectations of the group should have a hand in shaping that. Yes. And this, this reminds <laughs> me of the the old adage, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. There's a lot of bathwater. <laughs> There's yeah. not a lot of baby. <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll yeah. try to find that baby in there. Maybe the, the yeah, in this case, the, the bath container is actually like a, you know, a tank. <laughs> rather than, right, right. That's exactly what bathtub. I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's the problem, really, is that I would say the tyranny of the group is the cause of the reason why education is not what it should be. Yeah, and and how did we get there? That's something that we're going to I think slowly explore. We've we've both researched the history of education to some degree and and I'm in a formal program where I'm looking at some of these things, but but we're also going to hold off a little bit on that. I think our immediate concern is pointing out philosophically what 
do we as a society really need from individuals? Right, right. I could propose a couple of things that seem to be self-evident, seem to be obvious, and maybe we can we can look at those. Because a society, you could say, especially once it starts training the very young individuals of, of that society, needs the citizens to have a certain level of literacy, certain level of fluency with numbers and basic operations of numbers, arithm- reading and arithmetic, and maybe you know some knowledge about the way the world works, scientific knowledge, and some knowledge about the system itself, what we call citizenship knowledge is the way the government works and those types of things. And so you could see how from the beginning when education is seen as an as a societal project, right, like something that's going to be established using the resources of the group to benefit not only the individual, but benefit the, the larger society or group, that it's only natural that you would say, okay, then we have to we have to teach them to read. We have to teach them to write. We have to teach them to do basic math at the very least. We have to teach them what the current knowledge is about the laws of nature, right? And the laws of the universe or physics and chemistry and biology and those things. Right. And so this is this is pretty, it doesn't seem very controversial. Agreed. So what's the problem then? <laughs> we, we, ought to, we ought to break it down anyway. Yeah. Here's one thing I would propose or I would offer as a claim to regulate or attenuate the expectations of the group a little bit. There's a paradox involved. So my claim would be there's there's a certain paradox involved that the more you structure your expectations and impose them on the individuals, the less true results you're going to get. For example, you might get superficial results. You might get citizens who they have these skills of reading and writing. They have some basic knowledge, but the fact that they didn't acquire those skills or that knowledge, they didn't obtain them through their authentic interest in them, their authentic curiosity. They weren't actually asking questions. They didn't feel a need to become literate. They didn't feel a need to to be able to do math. They didn't feel a curiosity about the way the world works or the society works. They were just told that this is important, that their whole the whole driving force behind their learning these things throughout their lives was just that this is something you need before they were even allowed to. So there's a sort of opportunity, I think, with with individuals where if you give a little time and a little bit of space, that person develops an interest in those things, develops a curiosity, might start asking those questions. And that's the prime opportunity to for that person to start engaging in that. But when society comes and designs an education system, then often and what we see in our schools today, I think, is, is not waiting for the individual to become interested or to become intrigued or curious about things but to to force them to engage in those things. Right. And I think that one of the things to really consider is when we look at society coming in or the, the group coming in and creating an educational system and standards for each individual to meet, that's obviously a traditional approach to education and how systems are right. formed. And And I think fundamentally what we're discussing here is a more individual from the ground up approach to education in a society that is built upon the ideas of liberty, do we not have an obligation to approach this differently? Yeah, I, I think that's a good point is we have to look at what kind of society are we claiming to want? If, if the society that we want is a totalitarian society, then probably it's not that important to give people freedom during their education. And probably we'd want the opposite. We'd want to condition them to submission and taking orders and doing what the group demands and what the group expects. But if on the other hand, which I would say in the West, for example, and even most places in the world these days, the society that's purported to to be the desired goal is not a totalitarian society where individuals are just just have to submit themselves to the authority of the of the group absolutely so montesquieu brings this up in terms of uh, liberty democracy and points out that one of the essential things that people have to be able to do 
to manage a democracy is, is to be able to give up liberty. And, mm-hmm. and this is because there's going to be times where the, the republic might be threatened and you have to count on the citizens to give up their liberty and their own choice in their lives in order to do something for the, the group. Right. So, so Montesquieu's pointing out just, just a fact about people living in a society. Like that's how this society can perpetuate is if it can be defended and, and still hold to its ideals. So he's just pointing out right. a, a fundamental philosophical truth about these things coexisting is that there has to be an ability to choose freely to give up liberty for a certain amount of time. In order to engender mm-hmm. that kind of faithfulness to one's society, then I would assert that the totalitarian regime of, educa- of education, which is, now we're making it sound really extreme, but in some ways it is, <laughs> and I want to be quite severe uh, yeah. on, on this because we've seen kids go through this system, and in some places it, it can be quite troubling. But this totalitarian regime is not going to engender any sort of love for the uh, the, the larger society that uh, that nourishes and, and, and allows such a regime to exist for these kids' first real exposure to larger so- society. Right. Yeah. And one thing I just want to say really quick is we t- we've talked about our experience as teachers and how both of us started off in teaching in public schools. And so also I want to make it clear here that when we're critiquing the current system, we're not talking about simply the system of public schools, right? We're talking about the the overall approach to education, which maybe in private schools, to some degree, the situation can be better, just depending on different factors, like the expectations there, again, of the group, like what kind of parents bring their kids there, what what kind of uh, approach to education formed the, the basis of that school in its founding. But then probably there's private schools that may, are maybe even worse in their preference of the expectations and concerns of the group over the individual. So that's one thing I just wanted to make clear. It's, this is not an issue of public versus private schools. Thanks for pointing that out, because I think our struggles have led us to private school because there's a lot more opportunity to implement uh, changes, whereas in public schools, you're, you even with as as we've mentioned before, even with supportive teammates or administrators, right? This is a leviathan. I mean, it's it's quite difficult to overcome anything. Uh, but yeah, it's not like we're in teacher heaven <laughs> in the private schools. We still have to <laughs> we still have to have a serious conversation right. about what we're doing. Yeah for this for the kids right the same forces are at work there and they right. can they can take the school in the exact same direction in the exact same um, wrong direction <laughs> yeah the exact same wrong by, direction. By, according to yeah. us now at some point we're going to say <laughs> we're going to say there's legitimate forces <laughs> legitimate yeah right <laughs> at some point we're going to yeah, put up we, a, yeah. an apology for a society but right but we're not there yet i guess <laughs> yeah we're trying we're, so you know uh, I guess we can disclose to our listeners that this is our second attempt at <laughs> at having this discussion and making a, a solid case for the legitimate expectations and concerns of the group. Uh, but here again, we we get into the, I think we really resist <laughs> something in us doesn't want to, to lend too much credence to that because of the current state that we're in. Right. And, and I'll say that there's... It, I think we did an okay job in our first recording. It was just incredibly dry, and you, it didn't feel like we were giving a real defense of society. It was, it was sort of by the numbers. And I think we're right. trying to understand, 
I think we're trying to get ourselves to this point of, of yeah, being excited about saying, yes, your kid has to read. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, which, yeah, which can give our listeners some indication of how, <laughs> how radical we are that we're struggling with that, with that statement. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think the reason we're struggling with that statement is because, uh, I mean, you have personal experience with this and I'm in the middle of, you know, education of, of my daughter who's, who's six and, and just at this point of reading where the, the group program that's implemented for reading actually has the opposite effect. Right. Like we, yes, I think we both can agree the societal expectation for literacy is appropriate and we can get behind that. But right. it feels like as soon as we say that, we're giving legitimacy to all the reading programs out there, which I, we don't want to give legitimacy to reading programs right, that exactly that make kids feel like they're not doing it on time or they're not doing it right. That yeah, those are right. those are the issues we're running into. I think is right. that we see right. we say legitimate interest literacy, and then we see <laughs> what does what have we done with that legitimate interest? Uh, well, we've we've standardized it and we've we've implemented right, it right. and we've remediated kids who aren't doing it fast enough. And right, right. And <laughs> very few people yeah, feel I good talk, about reading right. at the end of that process. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's a stressful, pressure-filled, uh, judgmental process that ends up, I think, you know, and I can talk about my experience, ends up labeling lots of kids as having problems that if maybe there was just more patience, more time, more freedom given to them, they wouldn't end up, they wouldn't need those labels. Those labels would be irrelevant. Like my experience with, with my own, with my daughter that you mentioned was that she was going to a first grade public school program. And of course, they have their idea and expectation about how learning to read should take, should, should happen, how quickly it should happen at which grades and everything like that. And they have a very structured program in place to introduce the child to reading, have the child practice reading, assess the the level of reading for the child. And this created a lot of stress for my daughter and for our family. And she would come home with these books to practice reading. And she would cry a lot and, and everything. It was terrible, really. Like it was putting a lot of emotional strain on her. And I looked at the situation and thought, okay, she's going to hate reading, number one. Number two, the school is going to consider her to be, you know, a struggling reader and potentially label her with some kind of learning difference or something that will change the way the school sees her, right, as a learner. So we decided to, to take her out of the school and, and start homeschooling. Up until that point, we didn't even really consider homeschooling. We didn't have an ideological basis for it. And so a lot of these experience, you know, and as my experience as a teacher is how I developed to the point where I am, of you know, my attitude and an analysis of education. But basically, once we took her out of the school, we started homeschooling. We didn't pressure her about reading. We just, in our home, we have an environment that's a liter literate environment. And she just naturally learned to read over the next course of the next one or two years and became a proficient reader. And I'm sure, you know, we don't bother to test her and evaluate her and things like that. But from my observation, she seems to be a good reader, a skilled reader, someone who can who can read difficult texts and, and, she, and come and, away with an understanding. And does she enjoy it? And she enjoys it, right? She doesn't have any negative attitude towards it. She like just naturally, probably even unselfconsciously, just uses reading as a useful tool to interact with the ideas of other people and, and also express herself in, in writing and, and speech. So I, I guess what the, the point that I came to is is thinking that the human human beings naturally, when they're in a certain environment and given an opportunity, 
when there are valuable things that they can acquire, they'll just naturally acquire them. And that's not to say that that maybe there won't be some children here and there because of some neurological differences that they have, dyslexia or, or other things that they might have more difficulty acquiring those those skills. But the point is, is there's there's no need to have this strict timeline. Like in first grade, if, if a child is not reading to a certain level that now we need to have some intervention and, and do something about that, because it's not, I don't know, like you just say, what's the big deal? <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, like, yeah. well, I can like tell you the that time- the the other side's going to say that. Uh, well, if you let your child read on his or her own, I mean, this could devolve into poor spelling. It could devolve into a misunderstanding, punctuation, basic standards like that in language. And if you if your child is learning to read through sources like the internet or text messaging or things like that, where right. there's like pressure on kids these days to learn to read for those reasons, well, then they're going to learn this terrible form of English. And I would say to that, just anticipating it, that's no different. It's no different than what's going on right now anyway. Uh, In fact, what's probably troubling is, is that there's a compartmentalization of the language in the reading uh, that's done at school versus the language in the reading that matters. And yeah, I would say most students are putting the language that's learned at school into a box and packaging that yeah. up <laughs> and ignoring it <laughs> w- <laughs> right. w- when it becomes stressful and, and uninteresting. Right. Uh, w- and at the very least, this is this is a really simplistic and one-dimensional view of language, right? To right. think that that the human being can't differentiate between the te- you know language in the context of texting and the internet and language in the context of, you know, more formal texts, right? <laughs> like, like texting, but like books and articles and in an academic setting. I, I mean, it, it, you could say this is maybe the same kind of fallacious reasoning that would be given why a child should only learn, learn one language. Right. Just experience shows that bilingual children don't have any of these, any problems. And in fact, they it's an advantage to them. There's this tendency of the group to over over manage things over structureize <laughs> to, to try to uh, um, uh, impose too much structure on natural processes and this is how we've we discussed learning in the last episode talking about it as a natural process and the education system is supposed to be there to facilitate learning and if you start if you take something that's a natural process sure there are going to be ways to make it easier and to offer better opportunities and better environments and more expertise to the learner and that that learner will benefit from those things but if in the course of doing that you you create you suffocate the learner then you know you think that you're systematizing something and helping it with that but it's actually because it's a natural natural process and you're you're making it unnatural you're actually killing that process yeah and <laughs> we we've talked about this as a, a mechanical process uh, which is right. the system is very concerned with efficiency and in some ways it's concerned with efficiency comes through in ways that are quite frustrating as soon as you recognize the human element to it so yeah. one of the things i was thinking about was a <laughs> Uh, is a, a situation that would come up quite often in a, in a big school, which was you would get a student from another school and there would be an indication of severe lack of knowledge, I guess, and, and, and to try to proceed as to, so, so you get, say, a 10th grade student in English and to try to proceed with that 10th grade curriculum didn't make any sense at all. 
but you'd still run yeah. these students through and a lot of times they would barely pass or fail and then the question becomes like why why did why why did we do that to that person <laughs> like <laughs> right <laughs> right yeah i mean and and even if even if the the recognition is is quick enough and severe enough that immediate remediation is implemented again why are we doing that to that person because it's not like that's a right. socially right. <laughs> easy situation for that kid i mean it's probably the worst thing that could happen is uh, it's like right. you're going to be separated separated off because you're dumb. Uh, I mean, that's the message right. that that we right. get, and we're going to force you to focus on answering multiple choice questions and and you know these formulate short answer and <laughs> short answer writings and, and essays. Right, right. We're just because, going to get because you the real ready determination for, the, for yeah. the standardized exam at the end. Exactly, because that's that's the main pressure hanging over the heads of those who are trying to make sure everyone's where they need to be. Right, because it's the, the the main thing that determines that. Right, and it just even even the idea of remediation is not it's not a bad idea to to recognize that that a person's condition is such that they require special attention and an approach that is not appropriate for the others their age. Right, this, because we have them grouped by age. But to to think that what that what that child needs or what that person needs is for their learning to be even more micromanaged, even more structured, right? Uh, they need even less room for developing personal and authentic interest in what they're doing, right? It's almost like because they're an emergency case, right. right? And they need some kind of urgent care that needs to set aside messy things like, <laughs> you know, like being interested or curious. Right. You know, this reminds me a little bit of Hurricane Katrina because Dallas-Fort Worth had a pretty big uh, influx of, of yeah. residents from New Orleans and we right. had students coming in who, and this not this not to say anything about where they were, but in, in terms of education, but where they were personally, you know, they, right. losing their homes yeah. uh, and having to to adjust. And the there's always and I, and you got to put the blame on parents too with this. And there's always this yeah. emphasis on oh well. Education is this thing that's this expected part of their life that is normal, and it's and they need something that's normal. And I, I mean, it didn't really at the time. I was totally fine with that. I would be like, "Yes, give these kids something that's normal. Let's do what we can." But why? Right. Like right. The, like your your house literally was flooded <laughs> by by a major breakdown right. in uh, in the city that you were living in. Uh, you know, with the levees breaking and in a, a an enormous natural uh, disaster, like why why are we telling people after something like that that oh we need something normal, something stable, something that they expect? How about we approach people according to their circumstances in life so that they can be prepared for life? <laughs> I mean, right. What, right. what is yeah, this and, illusion yeah. that we want to create of like uh it's you know it's okay you. You're back in right. school now. And to take those those kids who've been affected by this disaster and to put them into the school and mix them with kids who, who are, are completely oblivious right. to that level of, of disaster. Right. Right. Their lives are just going on as normal. And this seems like this is only going to exacerbate and, and make their make it more acute what they're going through and make them feel isolated. Right. And we referred to them as Katrina kids. I had, you know, like a couple in each of my classes, right? Like one or two. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like you're saying, this is it's showing like very little awareness of the 
psychological state of these kids, or at least trying to understand it. Or, or yeah, it's it really it's it's very simplistic. When I think, and, and it reminds me a lot of of our current situation with with uh, COVID nineteen and the idea that we just need to get back to to what's normal. I guess with the difference that everyone is going through the same thing, whereas. Uh, with Katrina, it was really like these Katrina kids were going through a very unique individual and personal hardship and struggle, and we're mixing them into a school that's just like business as usual. Right. And I would say that this is a much larger scale societal concern that I'm very skeptical about this get back to normal uh, when things are have gone bad. And I'm not saying that kids shouldn't find a, a safe place to live or a roof over their heads. I mean, basic human needs, certainly uh, we want to provide for that. And if that means you have to leave the city, then that's what it means. Yeah. But but an educational system, a big public school, and, and a lot of times, you know, private schools, any school is not going to be able to adjust to the individual, to, to the path that that individual is on. Like that, that individual exactly. had, uh, if we go back to our analogy of the, of the path, you know, that individual was on some sort of path, however it was going, and then <laughs> a natural disaster came in and washed him clear from anything where his path is obvious to him. And so it, right, right. like for that, for that child, orientation back towards what, what he can do and what it means to be in a world where that kind of thing can happen, that's essential. And it's essential that that happens immediately. Right. And there should be zero concern with getting back to normal. There should be a concern with the right. individual adjusting to this reality of, of existence. Right. And, the, and an education system that's completely shaped by these group concerns and expectations that, that are necessarily... I don't know about necessarily, but they're at odds with the path of the individual to a really large extent because they they usually take the shape of standardizing things, making them more efficient, ensuring a certain outcome. Because of those, the messy path of the individual becomes an inconvenience to that system. It becomes something that you want to you know mitigate as much as possible. You want to standardize each individual's path. So a system that's set up like that can't handle individuals. It, it, it's unable to respond to the paths of individuals in a way to to help them with those paths. And and I think what we're what we're suggesting is that a system that's free of that domination of group concerns is one that would be capable of meeting individuals, like we said, you know, before meeting individuals where they are, seeing what their path is, right. and helping them on that path, rather than trying to manufacture that path for them. Right. Yeah. I- I would say that the <laughs> there's a lot of times a, a criticism at our school. I might have mentioned this before, but I'm not sure. But there's a lot of times a criticism at our school, which is very small, that we keep the kids in a bubble. But I would say, like, generally, yeah. we're trying to accomplish. And, and and I disagree with that, but but I get it. I understand why people say that. But I would say the, the, the problem is much larger. And it's, it's a... <laughs> Uh, that accusation of putting kids in a bubble falls flat for me because I see everybody doing that in all situations. Yeah. Uh, Katrina is a good right. example. COVID is a good example. We have a reality to face, an actual world yeah. that is bringing challenges to us as human beings. And we're insisting uh, upon human institutions that we're comfortable with, even when it doesn't make sense to do so. Even when what the the human quality that's needed most is adaptability, innovation, uh, sacrifice. I mean, those are the 
Yeah. Those are the things that that when reality imposes when when nature imposes itself or when nature impinges on human institutions, those are the qualities that need to arise in human beings. But I think generally right. we just try to immediately create that barrier again and and shield the young people who are the most important ones who need to realize what right. those qualities are from developing those qualities. Yeah, right. It's so ironic, and it just kills me. You know, the <laughs> the irony of it is that that. Uh, Sorry, let me let me formulate my. Thoughts. We're doing a great job defending society here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The uh, oh man, I had it. Oh, this is so annoying. Yeah, I I had a perfect, you know, like it kills me. It's ironic. Yeah, it's 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 ironic that those. What I wanted to talk about was how, like, what you're saying, the people who will criticize or have this anxiety about being too easy on kids. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, like this, there's this real concern, right? And and this is what 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 bugs me so much is because they're the ones who who don't want to face reality. It, it, there's a delusion. It's a, like a wishful thinking, and it, and it's a real delusion, right? To to think that this group, this whatever you want to call it, this pressure that needs to be brought to bear on kids, this kind of forcing them to face certain difficult facts or realities is expressed. And like you said, like this kind of concern that we're keeping them in a bubble, we're sheltering them, we're being too soft on them. First of all, like it assumes the worst about kids. Right. Right. It assumes that like if you don't, <laughs> if you're not there, you know, with a whip <laughs> right, of some kind, then they're going to be lazy. They're going to get into trouble. They're not going to use their time well. Like it really, that's a really like um, condescending view of children, <laughs> right? Like, and it it really it bothers me. And then, so it's a sort of like the adults or the group can form concerns that are that are of a disciplinary nature that are going to reform these kids. It's it's as if these these kids are are like somehow have fallen off the path. They need reforming. They need to be to be fixed in some way, right? Almost like. I don't know, like really prisoners. <laughs> so, you know, I, okay, like I don't want to go off, you know, too extreme with the examples, but just bear bear with me here, right? Like if you have a, a prison full of prisoners, you're not going to trust them with their time. You're not going to trust them with freedom. You're not going to trust them with anything until they, they've been reformed. Right. Right. And why is that, right? Because you say essentially the fact that they're in this prison means that they, they, they've shown that they're unable to to manage their freedom in a responsible way. And in a lot of ways, this approach to education, which sees children as needing to be trained in a disciplinary way, as being forced to face the the harsh realities of the world is like that. And it's but the the irony of it is that I was saying that really bothers me is that actually the exact opposite is true, right? Like if what these children need is to be treated like human beings. They need to to face situations where they have some choice and and uh, see themselves as free and see themselves as having agency uh, and seeing see themselves as being responsible, right? Which it's hard for a person to do that when they're being ordered around all the time, right? Right, like you don't feel any responsibility, any ownership of of your actions or the results of your actions. And this is, I, I think, and it's a self fulfilling prophecy because the more you expect kids to just submit to the wisdom of the of the institution, the more they're going to be unable to exercise their own judgment and wisdom. They're, they're not going to be able to develop their own capacity for for making good good judgments and 
and uh, being critical thinkers and doing what's right. And then it just confirms your previous expectation that children need more, right? You need to put more pressure on them. You need to put more restrictions on them. You have to be harder on them. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's a delusion. That's what I want to well, say. Well, it's, it's <laughs> those people who say like this is the real world. Yeah. Why are you living in this delusionary bubble? Bubble. They're actually the ones who are suffering from a delusion. Yeah, I agree entirely. And and I'll say I I, I think it's easy to fall in this trap, but it's it's a thing that's dehumanizing to take a child in crisis and act like the best thing you can do is put them in class and give that child a grade, <laughs> or right, <laughs> or or better. Here's here's even better. Uh, take a child in crisis and say, oh, you'll be able to capitalize on the struggles when you're applying to college or for uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> for whatever essay you have to write. You should draw upon right. the... I mean, and, and we're... <laughs> we are failing <laughs> at our podcast attempt here today, but I feel like it's, yeah. <laughs> it's important stuff. <laughs> so, right. so, yeah, I mean... Uh, we've seen kids go, going through all sorts of stuff. We've seen kids lose their parents. We've seen uh, kids lose friends. Uh, and and we've seen this disturbing trend to, uh, this was when the tax test, the, the Texas Assessment of Knowledge and Skills was in place, this disturbing trend to appropriate those experiences and uh, as, as oh, educators yeah, right. and turn them into... Yeah meaningful essays so that they could get a four, uh, which is the right. top score which, on by the, the way, essay. Is, by the way, which will be of no benefit to them. <laughs> <laughs> which doesn't help Except, them. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. how does it help? Like, does that help if you write about yeah. your dad dying uh, and you get a four on yeah. that? Uh, yeah. I mean, no. Even getting a four... Even getting a four is, is of absolutely no benefit uh, to them. It's only a benefit to uh, the school. Yeah, it's only to the, yeah. To the, I told my students once before the tax test, I said, you know, I've been thinking about a way to, you know, something to present to you, to motivate you, to do the best you can on this test rather than just pass it because you should be motivated to pass it. But I said, now, here's what I, here's the best I can offer you of why you should do the best you can because maybe your parents own some property in this district. And if you score, the better the scores are, the more likely that homes in this, in the school district will go up in value, you know, so maybe, maybe you'll, you'll, uh, you know, get, obtain some financial benefit from that <laughs> in the future. Right. Right. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. And it's true too. Uh, that's, that's the only benefit. Because colleges that, don't care, yeah. you know, yeah, even the, normally you can say, because on your college, but really, I don't, as far as I know, colleges don't care how students No, on this particular exam, it was all about uh, judging schools um, in the state of Texas. So exactly. And that's what it's that's what is exactly designed for. Right. right, Is judging the schools. So I wanted to come back to this this idea of the the kids in crisis, you know, like we said with the Katrina kids or or in the current situation with COVID. We're not suggesting that that when a child is going through some difficult or sudden hardship or even facing tragedy that learning shouldn't be made available to them right we're not we're not suggesting that that they should be taken out of an academic environment and or anything like that like for example at that time reading might be a very useful thing to them right right writing might expressing themselves would be very useful to them being in discussions in class considering literature also maybe even for a lot of students engaging in in math and and science and those things could be very beneficial to them that's not what we're saying right that learning should be put on hold i think what we're saying is that that learning should be so sensitive to the state of the child that it would serve the child right in whatever capacity it can, and not be forced on them. Uh, so even to the extent that, let's say, 
at that time, you see that this learner is only interested in writing to the extent that doing math or, or, or science or anything else is, just creates more stress or more anxiety for them or something. For some reason, all they want to do is just, just keep writing every day. Then you just say, okay, that's what this child needs. And then, you know, you facilitate that. Or on the flip side, like a, a child who just wants to solve math problems and engage in, you know, in computation and, or whatever. It's, it's just putting the child first and their path first and recognizing the, recognizing the primacy of that and that it's a priority. And it's much more important than whatever educational program has been laid down by <laughs> state lawmakers, committees of experts. It's just, uh, to me, it's just a no-brainer <laughs> that, that you can just put that stuff aside. And it shouldn't have been there in the first place. <laughs> right. And I, I mean, I think the... <laughs> To, to, we are we are talking about a reform here that, like I was saying earlier, is starting from the individual and appreciating later that society has uh, standards rather than the reverse. Right, and right. that's a big change, and that's that's a complicated change. And I think I mentioned in the introduction, anybody involved in education, I hope doesn't feel like a dehumanizing person. But we, we have to realize right. that to the extent that we don't realize where the students are and what they're capable of managing and in terms of expectations beyond, like abstract ideas about some future state that they have to live in, to the extent that we can't understand where the, the child is, is to the extent that we are utterly failing at that child. And, right. and I think we're so passionate about it because we feel like there's been so many times where we see a student who is not going to, it doesn't matter what class you put that student in. He's not in a position to absorb the important ideas of citizenship later in life right? You know, or, or voting yeah. or, <laughs> or democracy or right. any of these big ideas right. that we say are right. so important. And it's the feeling that there must be a better use of this child's time at that moment. Right. Right. Rather than forcing him or her to sit in this class in, in these classes all day long, if they're in some condition where they can't benefit from those, there must be something else that could be offered to them or, you know, give some opportunity given to them that they could benefit from that. So those seven, eight hours <laughs> could be used right. for something beneficial. Right. So how do how does society, to, to bring this back around to what we're supposed to do, <laughs> how does yeah. society appropriately <laughs> convey expectations to the learner, like legitimate expectations? Uh, like yeah, if you're you're living in this land, kid. Yeah. You don't know it yet, but you're living in what's called a state, and that state, has, right. you know, protects this land, and and you yeah. have an interest in understanding that relationship to the state. I would say that's the first thing you have to be concerned about is a child's understanding, not a child's understanding, but a young person's understanding of his relationship to the larger situation of society. And I think that right. that has primacy actually over literacy because you don't need to be literate to have discussions about these things. But right. you certainly, I mean, we, we have to, <laughs> we have to realize that, that there is a legitimate expectation there, right? So what's the right. proper way of doing that for a learner? I mean, it's, it's when the learner seems to be ready to understand it. But right. and I, we I don't want to, yeah. I'm sorry, I keep thinking of yeah. a little thing. Go but ahead. Like, we also don't want to wait until that learner is, say, uh, arrested for something that's illegal and he has no <laughs> idea about <laughs> right. these things, laws. Right. Right. <laughs> right. 
No, I I think first of all, uh, I guess then this is just right off, you know, based on just my own like ideas. So I don't mean to say this is the answer, right? <laughs> but just considering that, I myself I've found that the ideas of Maria Montessori are really appropriate for this for this question, and some of the ideas that she has that I really like are the idea of the prepared environment, which so it's it's basically that you you create you surround the the the, the child with with an environment that com- the environment itself communicates to that child what's valuable and important and what what kind of skills are at work. So, for example, and this is not just for Miriam Montessori, I think it's been widely observed that that children, in order to become literate, need to be in a in an environment of literacy. Right. Right. So there should be books. There should be people engaged in reading, people engaged in writing. Like the activities related to literacy should be there and and filling the environment. And the human being will, you know, naturally will recognize those things in, in his or her environment that are valuable and be attracted to those things. Now, that's not to say this is the full solution, but this is, yeah, I think a really common sense, you know, and, and easily we can see in our own experience how this is a huge difference maker. So, for example, like when it comes to laws and citizenship, it's not like the fact that there are laws and, and breaking laws and things like that is some kind of difficult concept to grasp. Those things are at work around you. And for example, if, if we put children in a system where there are reasonable and just expectations and boundaries that are clear and the child has the ability to understand those boundaries and accept them and, and recognize that they're necessary, then I think in a really organic way, the, they would develop an understanding of that. Now, when it comes to the particulars of that of their society and I don't know what the speed limit is or like what the definition of theft, those are not that hard to, you know, to right. kind of become informed about. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's it's much, e- I guess my point is it's much easier than we think. Just like reading, like the example of reading, children can learn to read in a much more natural, organic and relaxed way than, than what we give them credit for what we imagine because society you know and the group is is generally in more of a hurry has more of a timeline and they're arbitrary they're arbitrary there's a there's a sense that once a person becomes an adult 18 you know, legally that that person has to be able to read do basic arithmetic and understand the world that he or she is living in but tracing that backwards I, and so i th- Maybe they're not arbitrary, but but they follow a linear extrapolation of how to get from infant to adult, and I think that's where the the real error is. And that's an error in right, a lot of right. a lot of the decisions we're making about education is, or right. you know, the the panic in COVID about oh these kids is they're they're going to be they're going to have gaps in their knowledge, and you know, will they be able to yeah. make it up? And it's like, of course, they'll right. be able to make it up. <laughs> like, right. how do yeah, you think this, learning this gaps in their knowledge thing? Uh, this, these yeah, kinds of expressions I mean, and like learning loss, right? All this stuff drives me crazy, man. Yeah, and and, and I mean, all of that is just rhetoric to to force people back into normalcy. But the uh, this linear uh, projection of what what's going to happen in education is is what creates these standards, which. Right. Right. <laughs> Actually, arbitrary standards would be preferable <laughs> because <laughs> because then uh, then you would at least realize uh, in in more cases that you, that you're way off that 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 we as society right. are are just like not making any sense. Instead, we've get right. we, instead we've got this this logical idea about how education should proceed. It seems founded on things that make sense to us lines going up. 
but right. but it's not yeah, it's yeah. not how things grow. It's not how people grow. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I I, I agree. Like I I would frame it this way that that like a, a a good education system would be founded on the fact that that learning is a messy, nonlinear thing that doesn't happen on a certain timeline, but but that does happen. It is a natural. It is it's not something that has to be forced, right, or coerced. Like first of all, it's it's a real optimism about learning has to be in place, right? Not a pessimism about learning, which I think in our current system there's like an anxiety and pessimism about learning. So the first thing that would need to be there is optimism, knowing that human beings love to learn, they engage in learning naturally, and then setting up a system that can accommodate the messiness of it and the unpredictability of it. And and it, it would have to be a system that's very flexible, very responsive to the individual, not one that is so quick to problematize any individual that's not on the timeline or that's not following the sequence or that's not meeting the standards. So I don't know, you know, what exactly it would be, but like it would have those characteristics, I think. I think someone who thinks who has the conventional model of education in their mind when they hear these kinds of things, their mind very likely will jump immediately to some sort of laissez-faire, hands-off, hippie <laughs> like approach to education that just like you just let the kids do whatever they want. And it's going to lead to chaos and ignorance and bad character. That's a legitimate fear of of a misconception of what we're saying, right? That's not what we're saying. And so I just want to to address that. We're not saying like kids should just be left to do whatever they want. And, you know, you shouldn't ever use any means or resources to suggest a path to them or offer a path to them or or, or try to facilitate their movement in a, in a certain direction. Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to yeah. say that. Let, let me... F- let me put it this way. For society's expectations to, to understand them, let's imagine if we did nothing or weren't concerned at all about societal expectations and didn't impose them at all. So I would say the, the worst case scenario from the societal large perspective, which, which is <laughs> we have a problem with society, that word, but it's so hard because <laughs> right. with our levels of government here, it's I'm never quite sure which one I want to point to, but <laughs> right. But let's say from the the broadest like federal level, so the nation, if we don't attend or if we don't educate those expectations, if we don't uh, assure that our citizens uh, have literacy, numeracy, and, and the civic education, if they don't have those things, then we might imagine a world where people are poor at understanding complex thoughts communicated through writing or even speaking, uh, that people are unable to appreciate nuance. We might imagine a world where generally mathematics is relegated to, as a, as a special skill, relegated to only a few people who are math people. And we might imagine a world where there's a poor appreciation of what it means to be a citizen of a state and what it means to uh, defer to to experts in certain areas of uh, decision-making. And so we might imagine that world. If, if we go with this, we don't worry about serving social expectations at all. And of course, right. my point right. here, which should be entirely transparent, is compare that imagined world to the world that we live in now. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's... Yeah, the question is, are, is the result that we're getting right now, is it what the group needs and expects? Right. Yeah, we have... Almost a hundred percent of our uh, population right now has gone through a, a standardized uh, public school system uh, that looks yeah. similar enough from state to state. And and yeah, how how are we doing? <laughs> how are we doing? Right. That's what I would. <laughs> right. That would I would ask anybody who has a criticism of anything we're saying. 
how are we doing now? Are we are we pulling right. it yeah. off? Are we an enlightened culture that understands the the philosophical difficulties of democracy, liberty, equality, jurisprudence? Those such things are uh, in my mind. Uh, <laughs> we have a lot more. We have a lot more work to do. Right. Yeah. Not to mention moral questions. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not. Not to mention moral questions. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I I think that's a good uh, way to calibrate ourselves to this discussion and and maybe ready ourselves for the types of difficult questions that need to be asked. Although there is a tendency out there to just say, "Well, okay, Sean, you're right." We're not getting what we need, but that's just because we haven't been strict enough. You know, we haven't had uh, made the standards clear and strict enough and enforced them. And can I respond to that person? Sure. (laughs) I would say, again, go back to we have an obligation to build an educational system upon the principles on which our nation is founded. And to the extent that we don't do that is to the extent that we are not preparing our citizens for an appropriate education in this kind of world. And and it might fail, too. And we should realize that it might fail. But it doesn't deserve to exist if it has to exist because of a totalitarian regime that right the very first thing it does is violate the principles on which the nation's built right right very good i think we can <laughs> end on those thoughts <laughs> there's your defense <laughs> that's our defense <laughs> yes that's our apology for society <laughs> which admittedly is a, is a very lofty and philosophical defense but that's where we're coming from anyway so <laughs> Okay, well, we thank our listeners for joining us and we look forward to our next discussions. And thank you, Sean. Thank you, John.